Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all, to my favorite story of the 30 Years War. The 30 Years War contains many stories, many fascinating characters and events and details, of course, and we've explored them in great, great detail already. But if you're new to this, or if you just want to explore one idea in particular, then you've come to the right place. Here in this episode, I'll explain a, well, a a tale that I believe is a good candidate for some kind of film. It's just so poetic and everything comes full circle in such a satisfying way. So hopefully you will stick around and listen in to it. But if satisfying stories are your thing, oh boy, what a great segue that was. Matchlock and the Embassy, a historical fiction series set during the Thirty Years' War, beginning essentially in 1622, is out now. And you can get it by clicking on the link in the description below, and you'll then be brought to a whole load of relevant vendors to choose from. So take your pick and enjoy this very different content from me than what you're probably used to. Yes, I am exploring academia. Yes, I have my toe in historical non-fiction and being a historian generally. But the creative freedom that comes with making historical fiction, I mean, that's really special. And I can't express enough how much I've enjoyed this new venture. So I hope you'll join me for the ride. That again, Matchlock and the Embassy. I could talk until the cows come home about this and so many other 30 years for related things. But I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to say, sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy what is my favourite story of the Thirty Years' War. In the first few weeks of 1632, a 35-year-old German, aged well beyond his years, made his way from his exile in the Dutch Republic towards the end destination of Mainz, a great city along the Rhine. The journey was a long one, and had he decided to make it a year before, this German likely would have been set upon by his enemies and whisked away to imprisonment in some far-flung castle. That he was able to make this journey at all was a testament to the fact that everything, absolutely everything, had changed. Mainz may have been his destination, and The Hague, in the Dutch Republic, may have been his temporary home, but this German figure had been wandering for more than a decade. His children had virtually all been born in this exile, and his growing family had watched as the 1620s seemed to confirm that he could never return to his original homeland, where he had once ruled as the most influential Protestant German prince in all Germany. 
This German figure's name was Frederick V, and up until 1623, he had legally been the elector of the Palatinate, and the Palatinate was a German duchy which straddled the Rhine and parts of central Germany. By early 1632, Frederick's life had been consumed by the fires of the Thirty Years' War, and if Frederick's story was a film, I like to imagine it opening with this scene of Frederick travelling to Mainz to begin the next promising chapter of his life. The elector had been burned before. He was now technically a former elector, replaced by his Catholic Bavarian cousin, Maximilian. And Maximilian wasn't the only enemy that Frederick had to reckon with. The Habsburg dynasty, so it seemed, was determined not merely to defeat this German and his allies in detail, but the leading figures of the Habsburg family, be they in Spain or Austria, appeared convinced that the time had come to reorganise the very structure of the Holy Roman Empire itself. If you listened to last week's episode, you'll know what happened, and you'll know what happens next. But to tell the story now, I'd like to play the role of a film director for a minute or two. You see, I've always said that the Thirty Years' War is in dire need of a film or a Netflix series or a Game of Thrones-style narrative, which dramatises everything and brings the history to life. But since that hasn't been done, I'm going to do that now. Sort of. I like to imagine... Frederick happening upon an inn during his travels down south. While there, he uses his still considerable finances, basically provided by the Dutch, to pay for the best room with the most picturesque of views. Once he's settled in, Frederick walks to the large window to gaze at the view, which provides a gorgeous panoramic view of many miles of Germany, well into the distance. Somewhere far to the south, Frederick understood, was the city of Mainz, where he was expected to be. Well, further south still was the Palatinate, Frederick's old home. As he stares into the distance, the camera focuses on Frederick's weathered, strained face, and the dispossessed elector considers his fate up to this point. It's then that the camera zooms directly in onto Frederick's face, and if you've seen Saving Private Ryan, I know this seems like a bit of a jump, but if you've seen Saving Private Ryan, then... Imagine what happens at the beginning of that film, where the piercing eyes of an older Matt Damon transports us to the hellish scenes of D-Day and that scene of Saving Private Ryan, which really made that film famous. Instead of D-Day, though, we're transported to the Battle of White Mountain on the 8th of November 1620, where the forces of the Emperor utterly destroyed Frederick's army, an army that was made up of mercenaries and hastily assembled militia on a hill just outside of Prague. To be sure, just as the Second World War's story didn't begin on the beaches of Normandy, the Thirty Years' War didn't begin with the defeat of Frederick at White Mountain. About a year before that battle, just to place things in context, Frederick had taken a serious risk by accepting the Bohemian crown, hoping to deal a killer blow against the Habsburg position in Germany in the process. Instead of this great upheaval that he had hoped for, though, all Frederick got was a succession of demoralising setbacks, which included his allies abandoning him one by one, and even his co-religionists turning against him. Influential though he was in Germany, Frederick had the misfortune to challenge the Habsburg family just at the point when they were at their most powerful, but also their most sensitive to attack. Frederick's arch-nemesis Ferdinand of the House of Habsburg was willing to break any law, including the Empire's constitution, to preserve his dynasty's position, and Frederick seems to have overestimated his own familial connections at the same time. 
D-Day represented the beginning of the liberation of France in Saving Private Ryan, but it's fair to say that Frederick's dramatic defeat at White Mountain represented the beginning of the end of Bohemia's liberty. Henceforth, it was broken over the knee of the Habsburgs, its religious pluralism becoming a footnote of history, while Frederick and his family fled in such haste that his son was nearly left behind. By early 1632, it's difficult to know how many in Germany would have remembered the name Frederick V, Elector Palatine. It's harder still to gauge whether the inhabitants of Frederick's ancestral lands, the Palatinate along the Rhine, had accepted their new Spanish and Bavarian masters and moved on without him. For a brief period in 1619 to 1620, Frederick had represented the most fundamental threat to the Habsburg position in that dynasty's history. By accepting the Bohemian crown, Frederick seemed poised to upset the Habsburgs' carefully balanced control over the office of emperor. He had intended to lean heavily on his allies in Germany, as well as familial connections in Denmark, England and the Dutch Republic, but on all these counts he had been disappointed. The Emperor Ferdinand and Maximilian of Bavaria had engaged in the conspiracy of a century, which would not only strip Frederick of his lands and titles, but also hand them over to Maximilian, Emperor Ferdinand's most important and powerful German ally. This was the fix that ensured Frederick's defeat in November 1620. Since that date, Frederick had been a landless, some would say luckless, prince. Between 1620-24, to 24, Frederick had tried to enlist various powers in his quest for vengeance and justice against the Habsburgs, but only minor German potentates answered Frederick's call and though they resisted bravely, the combined resources of the Habsburgs meant that it was only a matter of time. News and rumours filtered continuously to Frederick, which only confirmed his suspicions about Ferdinand's unsuitability to lead all of Germany as its emperor. Not only had Bavaria's duke been illegally paid off, but Germany's other leading Protestant figure, the elector of Saxony, had also been bribed with some bohemian land to stay loyal to the Habsburgs. It was enough to make Frederick sick with rage, but he simply could not contest the Habsburg supremacy alone. By late 1624, thanks to conversations with his ageing father-in-law, James I and VI of Britain, don't you know, it seemed certain that Frederick would throw in the towel. And then, just when all seemed lost, Frederick's uncle, through his wife, Christian IV, the powerful king of Denmark, formally declared his intentions to move against the Habsburgs. Frederick could have lamented that if Christian of Denmark had only marched four years earlier, it would have had a far greater impact. But then beggars couldn't be choosers, and Frederick was certainly a beggar in many respects. Accepting the circumstances in 1625, Frederick gritted his teeth and buried his resentments, and he placed his faith and trust in the marching Danish king. Should Christian defeat the Habsburgs, then Frederick's lands could well be saved. But just when he thought he had the Emperor in a vulnerable position, the unthinkable happened. Emperor Ferdinand broke the rules yet again. This time the Emperor decided to employ the services of Albrecht von Wallenstein, a Catholic nobleman who had enriched himself following the exile of the old Protestant nobility of Bohemia. By buying more and more lands in Bohemia, which were cheap because they had all been evacuated in a hurry, Wallenstein had come to appear more like a well-endowed prince than a petty bohemian noble, and the emperor had bigger plans still for him. If Wallenstein would equip and pay for an army out of his own pocket, 
and serve the emperor, then Ferdinand would ensure that this subject became powerful and influential beyond his wildest dreams. But how was Ferdinand going to pay for Wallenstein? What was he going to give a man who had so much lands and so much riches anyway? Well, Ferdinand, to pay Wallenstein, would repeat his behaviour from a few years before, where he had granted land and titles to Maximilian of Bavaria, titles and lands which were not his by law to grant. Here, the emperor again demonstrated his contempt for the rules of the Holy Roman Empire, all in the name of defeating Denmark, and by proxy, defeating Frederick once again. The results of all of this conspiracy were devastating. Rather than a single army commanded by Maximilian of Bavaria, which he had been expecting, Christian of Denmark found that the Habsburgs now had two armies marching for their interests. One was marching in Maximilian's name, and it made way for the Danish border, with Wallenstein's army marching in Emperor Ferdinand's name, close behind. These two forces numbered 80,000 men in total, and this total continued to grow as more and more men were conscripted through Wallenstein's apparently bottomless resources and contacts. King Christian and his Danish-German army couldn't hope to match these forces, and it transpired that Christian, like Frederick before him, had relied on allies which were more fickle than any had suspected. Britain's new king, the ill-fated Charles I, made a big song and dance about supporting both the King of Denmark, his uncle, and by extension Frederick's cause, but neither the English nor the Dutch could afford to intervene at this point. Both powers were facing a serious challenge closer to home. For a brief moment, King Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden offered his services, but when it became clear that Sweden's sworn Danish foe insisted on commanding the war effort, Gustavus returned his attention to his ongoing Polish war. Frederick would certainly have empathised with the abandoned Danish king, and the whole experience would have felt eerily familiar to Frederick's own experience. Indeed, just as Frederick's cause was destroyed by successive defeats, so too did the Danish king fail to break out of the Habsburg encirclement, or contest the Habsburg position in any meaningful way. After a series of defeats, in fact, by early 1629, the Danish peninsula was overrun, and only the Danish navy was able to keep the forces of the emperor and his Bavarian ally away from Copenhagen. The emperor seemed willing to offer only the harshest terms, but at this moment, the king of Sweden stuck his head above the parapet again, this time to meet with his Danish rival in person. Very little is known about this meeting between the two Baltic kings, but its implications were clear. Though they might actively conspire against one another, the one thing that the Danish and Swedish kings could agree on was that the Baltic was not big enough for another foreign power. If the Habsburgs became powerful enough to acquire a naval presence in this already contested sea, then the interests of both Scandinavian kingdoms would be in jeopardy. The solution, so it seemed, was not solidarity necessarily, but bluff. The very fact that the kings of Sweden and Denmark were willing to meet in person spoke volumes to Wallenstein and the emperor. Much as Ferdinand desired total victory over Denmark, his generals warned him of the dangers of uniting all of Scandinavia against the Habsburg dynasty. Thus, a hasty peace with Denmark, far more favourable than King Christian had any right to expect, was made. 
To further dissuade the Swedish king from intervening, Wallenstein set some of his best soldiers a task. They would go into Poland to keep the war between the Polish and Swedish kings going a little longer. This act, while it might sound strategically sensible, actually provided King Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden with the excuse he needed to intervene in Germany. As if this intrigue sandwich wasn't filling enough already, French diplomats then arrived on the scene to help broker a peace between the Polish and Swedish kings. If a Swedish-Polish peace could be arrived at, then Sweden would be free to invade Germany without even having to worry about Poland. This, of course, was the very opposite of what either Wallenstein or the Emperor wanted. Now, it is difficult to know exactly how closely Frederick was able to follow along with these fascinating and complex diplomatic machinations, but he was almost certainly aware of yet another wrench which the Emperor had thrown in the works. At perhaps the worst possible time, Emperor Ferdinand had made some disastrous policy decisions which would weaken and divide Germany just as the Swedish lion was preparing to pounce. The first bad decision was a political one. Emperor Ferdinand sent many thousands of his best veterans into North Italy, where the Emperor's Spanish ally had requested urgent military aid. This stretched the Habsburg resources, and it made Wallenstein very angry indeed. Because Wallenstein saw the bigger picture, and he rightly argued that this would leave northern Germany vulnerable to an invasion by the Swedes. But Wallenstein's urgings were ignored, since this veteran commander had actually fallen foul of the very rulers he had spent the last few years defending. After many years quartering up to 100,000 soldiers on their lands, these nominal German allies to the Emperor had petitioned Ferdinand relentlessly to dismiss Wallenstein altogether. This came to a head during the summer of 1630, with apparently no consideration for what was brewing in North Germany at the time. Emperor Ferdinand agreed to dismiss Wallenstein, and thus remove Wallenstein's large army from the equation right when it was needed most. Ferdinand hoped that by caving to the pressure, the Germans would be more likely to approve of his son as emperor in a few years' time. These German rulers made no promises, suggesting that Ferdinand dismissed his powerful generalissimo for little to no real gain. And that was only one aspect of the emperor's failings. He hadn't just epically failed when it came to political decision-making. In religious matters too, the emperor had massively overplayed his hand, and in the process, he played right into those concerned rumours and whispers which suggested that Emperor Ferdinand was more interested in establishing a universal Catholic monarchy than he was in protecting Germany and Germans from attack. At this point in 1629, of course, Frederick was still watching on from his Dutch exile and he would have learned of his Habsburg enemy's decision to implement what was called the Edict of Restitution in spring 1629. The edict appeared innocuous enough on paper. Literally, it contained just four columns of writing on a single page. But if one took the time to absorb the contents, they would have been moved to horror or awe, largely depending on their religious persuasion. This edict represented what might be called the Religious Victor's Peace, and it was a peace which Ferdinand had always wanted deep down to implement. Before, he had never been strong enough, but with Denmark defeated, and with two massive armies flying the Habsburg flag in 1629, it now seemed like the ideal time to make this dream a reality. And what did the edict say? 
What was it about this edict that was so volcanically controversial? Well, the edict effectively tried to roll back the clock to 1555, before Protestantism had spread so rampantly throughout Germany. It would have forced many secular Protestant princes off their lands, lands which would be either handed to the Catholic Church or to a Catholic Habsburg ally in the meantime. As news of this edict spread, rumours accompanied it and unrest followed. This being the year before he was dismissed, Wallenstein at this stage still possessed his army, but, and this might surprise you, he was adamant that this army of his would not be used to compel Germans to agree to the edict's provisions. In the north of Germany, Protestant rulers who had gone along with the emperor for various reasons, such as the elector of Saxony, who, as we mentioned, had been bribed to follow along with everything, began to shuffle nervously in their seats. And they probably began to wonder to themselves as well if the exiled Frederick had been correct after all. Did the emperor truly wish to extinguish Protestantism from the Holy Roman Empire? Should they have joined Frederick when they'd had the chance? Frederick could be forgiven for saying, I told you so, but he was also too far removed from the German chaos to become directly involved. In any event, he still lacked the resources and support necessary to turn this religious discontent into a new campaign. For the moment, at least. One thing was certain, though. Emperor Ferdinand had, in a way, become a victim of his own success. He had turned his triumphs into defeats, and he had made no effort to improve his image with a rational or inclusive policy. To Frederick and many others, it would have seemed that Ferdinand didn't need an enemy to undermine his regime. The emperor was quite capable of shooting himself in the foot all on his own. By mid-1630, Germany was divided and anxious about its religious rights. There was anger about Ferdinand's attempts to roll back the clock, and where once there had been great fear and suspicion regarding Wallenstein's force, now that Wallenstein was gone, there was only a power vacuum. Rather than crack under the pressure, Ferdinand had made concessions. They just happened to be the most ill-timed concessions of all. Gustavus Adolphus, the King of Sweden, departed for Germany in May 1630, and he now faced a realm which was religiously divided and militarily vulnerable. The only force which now remained to defend the emperor's position was the army under Maximilian of Bavaria's leadership. If Gustavus Adolphus could defeat this army in battle, he would be able, potentially, to reverse the situation of the last decade. And as if that wasn't enticing enough, there was the possibility that Frederick himself would be able to get a measure of revenge against his Bavarian cousin, who had opportunistically seized Frederick's lands and titles a decade before. With so much to play for, and so much having changed, we'd be forgiven for thinking that Frederick would be in high spirits in 1629-30. Perhaps by the time of Gustavus's invasion of Germany in summer 1630, Frederick was beginning to believe in a kind of victory once again. But the event which truly shattered Frederick's resolve was the premature death of his son, who drowned following a boating accident in January 1629. This shock coming after so many other defeats and losses, could well have sent a lesser figure to his grave. But Frederick, through stubbornness, his faith, or perhaps a cocktail of these and many more feelings besides, continued on going. At this point, it was familiar to continue the resistance, and it would at least give him something to focus on. He had been blessed with a large brood of children, and one of these daughters, Sophia, would in time provide the progeny for the 
modern British royal family. Frederick, of course, couldn't have known this, so as a result of all of his disappointments, he had learned not to hope too strongly, as his experience with Denmark a few years before had taught him that failure was something to be expected rather than feared. There was no guarantee, even with the mess that the emperor had made, that this dynamic Swedish king would be any more capable of overturning the Habsburg hegemony than Denmark had been. That said, of course, Frederick wished Gustavus Adolphus well, and he followed his movements and journey enthusiastically. By early 1631, Gustavus had weathered some initial storms, but the critical moment came when a deal was signed with France. This deal between Sweden and France promised money and political support, far in excess of what Gustavus could have hoped to muster on his own. By this point, it was clear that France could not stay out of the German conflict for long, lest her Spanish rival would continue to dominate her. All it would require was a Swedish triumph to show the world that the Habsburgs were not invulnerable, and this was precisely what Gustavus now delivered. In early September 1631, in the town of Breitenfeld in Saxony, Gustavus's varied force clashed with the veteran army of the emperor. In fact, this army was commanded by Count Tilly, a commander who had served Maximilian of Bavaria for many years. Count Tilly had led his army to success against Frederick's ragtag army in November 1620 during the Battle of White Mountain. Since that moment, Count Tilly had never lost a battle, and his men had grown fond of the grizzled general, naming him Father Tilly, probably out of earshot of Tilly himself. Frederick wasn't present at Breitenfeld, but Gustavus managed to be in several places at once, outmaneuvering Tilly's men, rallying his own forces when the battle became dicey, and ensuring that his reformed artillery and infantry regiments laid down a heavy rate of fire at all times. Tilly's men mostly marched in the Tertio Formation, a pike square formation which posed a formidable challenge to other infantry, but which was also vulnerable to artillery and concentrated musket fire, which, by the way, Gustavus's well-drilled army delivered in spades. Tilly's legions were shattered at Breitenfeld, and Tilly himself was among the wounded. Retreating deeper south into Bavaria, it was now Maximilian of Bavaria's turn to worry about his position. This meant that from Saxony to Bavaria, no army loyal to the emperor could be found, and Gustavus made for the Rhine, rolling up fortress after fortress and forcing several high-ranking German figures to capitulate. Among the places seized by the Swedish king in the months after his triumph was Frankfurt, where only a year before the emperor had gathered with his closest advisers. Mainz, an archbishopric which had escaped the war's furies, was also invaded by Gustavus a few days before Christmas 1631. This prestigious town, halfway between France and the Habsburg heartland, served as the Swedish king's temporary base for the following year of 1632, and it was here that the Swedish king awaited the arrival of dignitaries, which included Frederick V himself. And so the opening flashback ends, and we return to the image of Frederick staring out the window into the distant German lands. He had been on quite the journey over the last 14 years, but after so much struggle, it now finally seemed as though victory, or at least a measure of justice, was at hand. His long, winding journey towards the Swedish king was representative of his own winding journey, which had brought his fortunes to this point. 
Frederick had seen firsthand how fickle a mistress this war was. One moment you could be in the loser's circle, but after the events of a year or a season or even a battle, everything could change and losers could be transformed into winners once again. Frederick would arrive at Gustavus's HQ in Mines within the first week of March 1632, and from that point, the latest chapter in this long and emotional journey began. We're all guilty about painting one side as the good or bad guy in history, and I'm certainly guilty of this even subconsciously. What I love about the Thirty Years' War, though, is that it is, generally, very difficult to apply these labels satisfactorily, which means you're left with shades of grey at the best of times. Even characters who do dastardly things cannot be considered straightforwardly evil, and the moral questions were all blurred during times of terrible war. Frederick V, for instance, though he was horrified at the sight of the damage which his auxiliaries inflicted in the early 1620s, this didn't make him motivated enough to end his stubborn resistance to the Empire because of this suffering. Granted, his resistance bore fruit in the end, but there was no way to guarantee this before the Swedish king came along. And speaking of that Swedish king, he probably strikes us as an obvious candidate for the good guy moniker. He freed German Protestants, he gave Frederick another chance, he defeated the overmighty Habsburgs, and yet... A closer inspection shows that Gustavus was motivated by the same things as Ferdinand. He wanted his religion and reign to be great, he wanted his realm to expand, and he wanted glory and renown. Now that he had gotten it at Breitenfeld the previous September, contemporaries were to find that Gustavus had become less accommodating to their concerns, more willing to arrogantly dismiss their wishes, and more confident in his own invulnerability. He had always been one to charge headlong into danger, and he had always led from the front on the battlefield, no matter how dangerous it seemed. But since he'd always gotten away with it, and since he had been showered with blessings and thanks, this Lion of the North had started to believe his own hype, and to believe that he could neither be killed nor defeated. Nor was Gustavus above doing horrible things for tenuous reasons. In the months before Breitenfeld, desperate to get a victory, Gustavus inflicted terrible suffering upon the residents of Frankfurt on the Oder, a smaller town than the more famous Frankfurt on the Main, but still a bustling town which was effectively levelled after resisting the Swedes, so it was said, for too long. At the same time, we should emphasise, Gustavus did not and could not always restrain his men. Many native Swedes had become used to the behaviour of plunder and pillage after spending so much time at war in Poland and they felt no compunctions about behaving similarly in Germany. As he marched and conquered then, Gustavus offered those new towns he encountered a choice, which wasn't really much of a choice at all. They could accept annexation into Sweden's growing German empire, or they could face ruin. Many, of course, had no choice but to accept, but the historian Peter H. Wilson in particular has underlined the point that Gustavus went on to demand such crippling bills from these annexed towns that many saw their whole economies break down and the currency be replaced with barter. Gustavus's favourite tactic for quickly raising money was to demand a bill many times the tax bill for the year, and then he would allow the town a certain length of time to collect this money. Imagine the scene of panic this would have caused, and then imagine the disgust of these townspeople when they heard propaganda which reported Gustavus to be the saviour of Germany. Certainly Gustavus was a genuine saviour to some, 
but to other Germans caught in his warpath, Gustavus was like any other unwelcome menace, like pestilence or famine, which had to be endured before all could move on. Any mention of Gustavus in 1632 should move us to mention the commander on the other side of the fence. To simplify matters, let's just say that Count Tilly and Maximilian were about to endure a period of decline, a decline which made Wallenstein, the emperor's former generalissimo, Ferdinand's most important friend. In the past, Wallenstein had been the individual responsible for bringing Emperor Ferdinand to new heights of power and success, and by late 1631, there were already calls for him to return to command, after intrigue and scheming had led to his dismissal the previous year. For sure, Wallenstein is another example of a morally grey character. He presented himself as a straightforward soldier's soldier, the commander who was above political and religious intrigues. He refused to implement the edict at the sword point with his own soldiers, and he loudly criticised Emperor Ferdinand's decision to send soldiers to Italy at just the wrong time in support of Spain. You can actually read the letters that Wallenstein sent to the Emperor to this day, and in those letters, let me tell you, he pulls no punches. Despite the fact that he rampaged through Germany then, we can at least say that Wallenstein had a conscience. He was no patsy of Ferdinand who merely did the Emperor's bidding. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This may well be the case, but we should remember at the same time, Wallenstein was only expressing his concern because he was worried about what might happen to his position. In other words, to his newly acquired duchies and, critically, to his newly acquired fortune. Lest we forget... Commander Wallenstein had only gotten rich because he had gladly accepted the lands and titles of others who had been exiled, killed, or otherwise removed. He had no qualms about playing along with Ferdinand's quest to upend the empire's apple cart 
and he upset many centuries of history in the process. True, Wallenstein was only willing to go so far, but a large part of the reason why he was back on the scene in the first place, by 1632, was because he had become concerned that if he didn't act soon, his ill-gotten gains would be seized by the King of Sweden. In fact, one of Gustavus's first acts was to return Mecklenburg, a strategically important German duchy which straddled the Baltic Sea, back to its original German owners. Mecklenburg had been one of the more recent acquisitions of Wallenstein, but thanks to Gustavus, it wasn't his anymore. Another thing that makes this all so juicy, though, is that these morally questionable characters, Gustavus and Wallenstein, who had intervened for different, but also similar reasons, would be forced to engage in a showdown, where both of their gains would be at stake. Which newcomer would emerge victorious? It was above the imagination of either man to think that in the contest between them, there would be only losers, and that Emperor Ferdinand, back in Vienna, would be the true winner. But back to our story, and as Frederick made his way to Mainz in March 1632, he must have marvelled at the new order which the King of Sweden had created. At one point, the very idea that the Habsburgs could be pushed back at all seemed impossible, and yet here Frederick was, freely travelling around lands which he had once been explicitly exiled from. All of this was thanks to Gustavus. The problem for Frederick was that the Swedish king knew how much Frederick owed him, and he also knew that while Frederick could be useful, there was little sense in going to bat for a dispossessed elector who couldn't defend himself. Gustavus could gain legitimacy for his claims to re-establish Frederick as the rightful king of Bohemia, and he even reprimanded one of his subordinates for failing to address Frederick as the king of Bohemia. When it came to Frederick's other titles, though, even Gustavus realised that Bavaria's elevation as elector and Maximilian's seizure of Frederick's titles represented something of a Gordian knot. A veritable tidal wave of change had swept through Germany since Breitenfeld, but military reports on the ground by early March 1632 had made it plain that this wave was running out of force. Bavaria was down, but not out, and Count Tilly was at this point still resolute in his determination to defend Maximilian's lands and probably gain a measure of revenge. Tilly, much like Maximilian of Bavaria, had been here since the beginning, and they weren't about to let this Swedish usurper remove them from the contest without a fight. Gustavus was informed that one of his subordinates had had to retreat from the town of Bamberg in the northern portion of Bavaria, as Count Tilly's resistance had been too strong. Strong though it was, defending Bavaria completely was impossible. The region was bisected by several rivers, including large ones like the Danube and smaller ones like the River Lech. This meant that the defender had to choose where to make their stand. They couldn't be in all places at once. These considerations were mostly redundant, though, because both Maximilian and Gustavus likely understood that the aim was to go for the jugular. Munich might take longer to get to, and one would have to cross the Danube and the Lech to get to it, but once there, Maximilian's mostly unspoiled capital would be ripe for the taking and the plundering. Ever since his experience a decade before when he had accompanied the army and not liked what he'd seen, Frederick preferred to stay in camp and steer well clear of the nitty-gritty awfulness of campaigning and battle. He may have wanted to go home to Heidelberg in the Palatinate, but as the Spanish and Bavarians had not been totally removed from there, 
it was still not safe. On this occasion, though, Frederick seems to have believed that the circumstances warranted a personal appearance from him, and he accompanied Gustavus for his showdown with what remained of the Bavarian Field Army. After a bloody confrontation at the River Lech on the 14th of April 1632, Count Tilly was fatally wounded, and Gustavus got his army across the river. Now he was desperate. Maximilian saw the writing on the wall. No, he didn't capitulate to the Swedes, but he did leave Munich open, like a sacrificial lamb, while Bavaria's other defences were well stocked with men and supplies, so an act of resistance to Sweden could be kept up. This shows bravery and character for Maximilian, which we may not have been expecting. Maybe we expected him to just roll over. But don't forget, like the other actors in the war, it was within Max's interest to keep fighting to the end. He wasn't just fighting for Bavaria, of course. He was also fighting to keep his newfound titles as a lector. To give in now would mean throwing all that away, which Maximilian simply could not afford to do. He had come too far to give up so sensibly now. As the Bavarian resistance retreated to the hills, Gustavus let Frederick know that his arch-enemy and cousin was on the retreat. Furthermore, Gustavus also let Frederick know that he intended to march on Munich, Maximilian's capital, as soon as possible. And this is what happened. Gustavus's army entered into Munich on the 17th of May, 1632. And with this, our story comes full circle. Frederick was willing to accompany this victorious procession, and it's interesting to imagine the atmosphere in the city, which had once seemed so removed from the horrors of the war. Maximilian's machinations, it has to be said, had helped bring the war to his doorstep, but there was more to this event than simply a greedy Bavarian ruler getting his comeuppance. In this moment of triumph, it was clear that not all could be placated. Gustavus, for his part, did his best to keep the Bavarian people safe but atrocities were undoubtedly committed on both sides, particularly in the Bavarian countryside where the Catholic peasantry reckoned with the foraging Swedes, everything was permissible. Gustavus's decision to attend mass did nothing to reduce these sectarian attacks on both sides, and it must have been apparent to the more perceptive Germans in Gustavus's camp that Germany itself was in trouble. If Germans could be this furious and unreserved in their behaviour towards one another, based on religious differences, then surely this didn't bode well for the future. Many Germans would have seen themselves as liberators, and they would have viewed Munich as just a stop-off before the final destination, Vienna, where the true comeuppance of the Habsburgs would be seen. As was always the case with conflicts like these, though, many others still would have been happy to march all across the continent, so long as the plunder kept on coming. Gustavus managed to squeeze 160,000 talers from the citizens of Munich, which probably explains why they didn't like him very much or believe very sincerely in his claims to be there to liberate them. To Gustavus, though, so long as they paid up, it didn't matter to him whether they loved him or loathed him. Busy though he was, he did make time for some leisure. More specifically, he spent an afternoon in an incredibly symbolic game of tennis, playing opposite Frederick and on Maximilian's private court, no less. This moment, in my view, is when Frederick's fortunes reached their apex. Before the actual details of his deal with Gustavus could be hammered out, before the true difficulty of the task before Sweden was realised, and before Emperor Ferdinand could mount any kind of comeback, Frederick could play in this perfect world where he was finally the victor 
and where the most powerful Protestant potentate was on his side. At long last, Frederick must have marvelled, after so many disappointments, so much failure and no shortage of personal tragedy, the former Elector Palatine was finally in the winner's circle. And what a circle it was. Sweden's victories along the Rhine had had an unintended result. It cut the Spanish off completely from their Spanish Netherlands possessions. For so long, the war between the Dutch and Spanish had been fought in this small region, and much of the fighting had taken place in lands consisting of modern-day Netherlands and Belgium. With this Swedish act, though, sweeping down the Rhine towards Bavaria, Spain's strategic position died a death, making them more vulnerable than ever to a Dutch attack. Spain's difficulty, in turn, meant opportunities for France, but it also meant that Emperor Ferdinand, who relied on Spain for monies and men, would be on his own for now. With Sweden dominant on land, and the Dutch dominant at sea, and France not even fully flexing their muscles yet, there was good reason to be positive, and to believe that the fortunes of the war had changed, and changed permanently, in favour of the anti-Habsburg camp. Already, Gustavus and his Chancellor were making plans to partition Germany, and Frederick was encouraged to participate in these talks. The initial talks with Gustavus about the future of Germany and how to settle all these problems gave Frederick pause for thought. He wrote to his wife in The Hague that he had found Gustavus's terms very high, but not impossible to fulfil. The Swedish king basically wanted the right to occupy all of the fortresses that Frederick owned, until the war was over. This was a reasonable request. He also wanted Frederick to acknowledge Sweden's leadership of the war in Germany. This latter request for Gustavus to basically lead the war against Frederick's worst enemy might have been harder for the dispossessed Elector Palatine to accept. After all, if you think about it, Frederick had carried this burden by himself for over a decade. He had painted the conflict as one of Wittelsbach versus Habsburg, or as the traditionalist Honourable German Empire versus the absolutist, intolerant, universal Catholic monarchy of the Habsburgs. Now the narrative would have to change, and Frederick would become just one among many individuals pledged to Sweden's side. Would there still be room for Frederick once the war ended? Gustavus also asked for religious toleration for all Lutherans in Frederick's Calvinist Palatinate, a request which the naturally tolerant Frederick seems to have taken badly. In the end, though, Frederick was amenable to these requests, and he recognised both the sense and logic of Gustavus's terms, and the bare facts. There was, after all, no one else in the world who could bring Frederick home in the same way as the Swedish king. Among the plunder collected at Munich were 119 cannons, and these cannons were probably familiar to Frederick, because they had been seized in the aftermath of the Battle of White Mountain in November 1620. We can't know how Frederick felt when confronted with this relic of his painful failure, which truly represented the beginning of his total fall from grace in Germany back in 1620, but I'd like to imagine that the scene must have been an emotional one. Among the cannons were other plundered works of art which had been seized from Heidelberg, and if he focused on these artworks long enough, Frederick may have been able to imagine himself at home. Perhaps he would have imagined himself relaxing many years before he had accepted that cursed bohemian crown when everything was calm, peaceful and, above all, simple. But Frederick had chosen to accept the bohemian crown in September 1619 
and that decision had taken him all the way across Europe, from Bohemia to The Hague and now to Munich. Not to mention the fact that the ripples of this decision reached all the way from Moscow to Brazil. The dramatist within me likes to imagine that when Frederick's allies recaptured their old cannons, for the sake of giving the middle finger to the Habsburgs, they painted these recaptured cannons with a load of anti-Hausberg slogans, kind of like what the Allies did when they painted their B-29s with anti-Japanese or anti-Nazi slogans. But, unfortunately, there's no evidence of this happening. Your grace would no longer recognise poor Bavaria, Maximilian wrote to his brother in summer 1632. Such cruelty has been unheard of in this war. Indeed, by the time Gustavus's men moved out of Bavaria by late June 1632, Maximilian's homeland was about as unrecognisable as Frederick's had been. Although Bavaria and the Palatinate were, by this stage, unrecognisable, equally unrecognisable was the conflict itself. Who could have imagined that a rebellion in Bohemia could have brought Europe's actors to such a point where plunder and wastage became as normal as another Habsburg marriage? Who could have imagined either that the conflict was not even half over? Despite the mood in Gustavus's camp, there was still much work to be done on the battlefield, and with this task of defeating the Habsburgs once and for all in his mind, Gustavus set out to confront Wallenstein, and the campaigning season of 1632 was resumed in earnest. Of all the scenes which the Thirty Years' War offers, this poignant image of Bavaria has always stuck with me. I think, because I always rooted for the underdog, Frederick's arrival in the winner's circle by 1632 and his triumphant procession into Munich shortly after made such an impression on me. But it also comes to mind because, quite honestly, it's emblematic of what the Thirty Years' War was. A conflict with innumerable twists and turns, with surprises and developments that sometimes appear so poetic and dramatic, we're tempted to view them as deliberate, rather than as accidents of war's changing fortunes. Anyone who knows the Thirty Years' War will know that these fortunes didn't stop changing in 1632. The remarkable thing about Frederick and Gustavus's discussions regarding the future of the Palatinate or of Germany is that they seem to take place in a kind of bubble. Having trounced the Habsburgs many times already, Gustavus simply assumed that he would do so again. He didn't reckon either for Wallenstein's brilliantly capable resistance or his own mortality. On the 16th of November 1632, in the bloody Battle of Lutzen, Gustavus's forces achieved a costly victory against Wallenstein's defending force. Casualties were high, but the death, which mattered the most in terms of the war's direction and in terms of European and world history, was the death of the King of Sweden, Gustavus Adolphus. Following Gustavus's death, a leading light of the anti-Hasburg cause had been extinguished, and Emperor Ferdinand's enemies struggled to regain the initiative for another few years. These difficulties paved the way for a Habsburg resurgence, and for a stunning Habsburg victory in the Battle of Nordlingen in 1634. The triumph was sweet indeed, not only because Emperor Ferdinand's son had been in command of the victorious army, but also because this win on the battlefield effectively turned the tables once more and reversed the old balance of power which Gustavus had established. By 1635, in fact, Emperor Ferdinand had united all of Germany against the Swedish invader, but the war was not about to go quietly. Following on from these reversals, the most important non-active member of the anti-Habsburg camp, France, 
elected to become officially involved. By the middle of 1635, France was officially at war with the Austrian and Spanish Habsburgs, while its Dutch ally fought against Spain and its Swedish ally fought against the Emperor. For the next 13 years, this state of affairs would continue, and the fortunes of war would change many times over again, before the combined powers of their enemies began to truly tell on the Habsburg camp. All of this is to show how fundamentally wrong everyone was to imagine in 1632 that after a few victories, the Emperor would be soon removed from the war. Perhaps, if more victories had been achieved, this would have been the case, but the point is, neither side was truly capable of achieving this total victory. Instead, talented commanders could do their best to transform the fortunes of the war, which meant a recasting of roles, as the defenders became the attackers, and vice versa. For Frederick, the reversal of fortunes would have been an incredibly bitter pill to swallow, but it was an experience that he would never have to see again. On the 28th of November, 1632, barely a fortnight after Gustavus Adolphus's death, Frederick V died of a fever. Not in battle or in a grand act of anti-Habsburg resistance did this considerable figure die. Instead, he passed away through the same terrible experience as so many others in the period, from a disease which was likely spread by the marching soldiers. Frederick's critics might argue that it was apt that he should die from a condition which his own stubbornness had made possible. Without his decision to accept the Bohemian crown, the war would never have come and the disease would never have killed him. We can say, indeed, that Frederick was killed by the conflict which he set in motion, even if it didn't kill him the quote-unquote obvious way. We're also reminded by Frederick's death that most deaths in the Thirty Years' War, soldiers and civilians alike, were caused by disease or starvation. So in that sense, Frederick's passing was not exceptional, and in some ways, it was fitting. In every other sense, though, Frederick's death was exceptional. Here's a man who, only a few months before, had plotted to turn everything around. Now, in a year which began and was passed with such triumphant, satisfying scenes for Frederick as he entered the home city of his nemesis, the year was to end with the deaths of Gustavus and Frederick, two men who did more than any other duo, perhaps, to instigate and then elongate the conflict. It's yet another example of how the Thirty Years' War can spin incredible tales wholly by accident. Frederick's final thoughts were of his wife and his considerable brood of children, who he had last seen the previous year. So, Frederick passed on, and he thus passed out of the fast-moving narrative which he had for so long contributed to. The Thirty Years' War, it seemed, was capable of moving on without him or without the Swedish king. Emperor Ferdinand, back in Vienna, would certainly have been pleased with the results. Not only was his generalissimo, Wallenstein, beginning to claw back some semblance of control, but 1632 had seen the death of his two main adversaries, and now 1633 could host the dawning of a new age of triumph. Ferdinand, at least, understood that the war was far from over yet, but what he could not have imagined was that it wouldn't end until Ferdinand's own son and emperor, Ferdinand III, brought it to an end, 16 years later. And now, to close this episode, I want to hit you with a scene change. It's 1660, and a jubilant Charles II of Britain returned to England 
to reclaim his throne and re-establish the Stuart dynasty in the process. Charles II was very excited and he was joined by a procession of relatives, friends and hangers-on. One of these relatives was particularly well-respected and had recently celebrated her 63rd birthday. She also happened to be his aunt. This was Elizabeth Stuart, the wife and widow of the late Frederick. Since Frederick's death 28 years before, she had never remarried, taking comfort instead from her children. And it's a good thing that she did so, because one of these children, Sophia, had been born in October 1630. Though she was barely a toddler when Frederick left to meet Gustavus, Sophia would marry a robust Hanoverian duke, and the two would welcome a son, George, in 1660. This is the same George that would later serve as the first of the Georgian Hanoverian kings of Britain in 1714. It's also remarkable because it means that in the very year when Charles II was re-establishing his Stuart dynasty, over in Hanover, a child was born who would one day supersede and replace this dynasty. All of this would have been impossible without George I's grandparents, Frederick V, Elector Palatine, and Elizabeth Stuart. Even in death, so it would seem, Frederick managed to turn the tables and achieve an unforeseen victory which kept his family name and legacy alive. That, in a nutshell, was like the Thirty Years' War itself, unpredictable, poetic, and utterly fascinating. And that's going to do it for today, history friends. I hope that you enjoyed this episode, and if you're new here, I hope you'll check out some of the older episodes too. I've had a blast writing and recording this, so I hope you enjoyed it as well, and that you'll check out this podcast in the usual channels. We're on Facebook and Twitter, and you can check out the website, wdfpodcast.com. Until next time, though, my name is Zach. This has been the 30 Years War, and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.